Uh, and we're in Galatians chapter 4. I'm starting at verse 8. So Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 8. It's also on the screens as well if you need it. Let me read. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Great. Now what do we do with that? First thing to do, we need to ask God for his help, so let's pray. Let's pray. Father, please rest our hearts. By your Spirit, open our eyes, open our ears so we can hear you speak to us through this passage. So that we can see the beauty of your one true gospel, that we may be founded in Christ and in him alone, in how he has given of himself so that we would be freed from the slavery of sin to be called children of God and that we would not turn from that. Father, please help us to see that this afternoon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Great, so genuinely, what do we do with this passage? Okay, here's a simple thing. This is a simple message for this pas- from this passage this afternoon that you need to take away. It's simply this, don't turn back. Do not turn back. Just don't go back there, it's not good for you. This happens in life, doesn't it? People tell us, look, don't go back to that place. Don't go back to that job. Don't go back to that relationship. People warn us continually. I heard it a lot growing up. It says a lot about me. But they say that to you because they know it's good for you and because they care. A good friend of mine went through a phase of gambling in his life. For about two years, he was completely hooked. There were some days when he was so, so happy, but there were many, many days when he was weak and miserable. After two years, he finally started to realize this wasn't good for him. And slowly and steadily, with help, he managed to break free. But he tells me, even now, every time he sees or hears an advert, his heart flutters. He's drawn to it. And we as friends have to keep telling him, don't go back there. 
Do not turn back to that slavery. You're free now. That's the tone here. You might have felt, as I was reading this, that, that Paul is being quite harsh in his tone, like he's scolding the Galatians. And that's because he cares for the Galatians, but he's also aware that there's a serious issue. I have a three-year-old daughter. It's so different, different when I talk to my daughter about what happened in Frozen for the 15th time in a week. That is my world at the moment. And I'm like, nothing's changed. They're still asking whether to build a snowman. Just build it already. But it's so different when she steps out into the street when a car's coming. I shout. I love her still the same, but the tone is very different. Paul clearly has a deep concern for the church in Galatia here. In verse 12, he calls them brothers and sisters. In verse 19, he calls them my dear children. He cares because God cares. But what is he really caring about? So let's just frame this issue. Look at verse 8. This is how he starts. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? So here's the big issue going on in Galatia. The Galatians are turning back. They're turning away from this one true gospel to a no gospel. That is what we saw back in chapter 1. Paul was saying, why are you deserting this gospel? And he's saying, look, don't turn back to that former life. You know what it was like. It was a life of slavery. We saw this last week in chapter 4, verse 3. If you look up just a little bit above, it says there, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Or in other words, the basic principles of the world. Now, I've tried to give you a diagram to sort of help and trace how he's going through. So if you could, there we go. So I hope this makes sense. The top is freedom. The bottom is slavery. If you click the first one, there you go. That's where they were. They were, chapter 4, verse 3, they were under slavery, under the elemental spiritual forces, the basic principles of the world. And he mentions that again here in this passage in verse 9. Do you see, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Same word, principles. He's saying, look, you were enslaved. Verse 8, to those forces who by nature are not gods. What he means is that look, they were enslaved by what they thought were powerful gods. The Gentiles in those days would have walked around looking at all these pagan gods around them and worshipping them. And Paul's saying they were no gods at all. They are idols. They are false gods. And all idols do is enslave you. To worship something, that, that word comes from two words, worth and ship being joined together. It's about your direction of worth. Where do you find your worth from? And the Gentiles back then were finding it in the idols of the day, the basic principles. If you actually think about this, that's how the world still works today. We find these basic principles around us all the time. Let me give you an example. Let's think of something like intelligence, smartness. That is something I think is highly valued in our society today. I would argue that's one of the idols of our culture. Many people find their worth in their intelligence. So what do we do? We invest in education. From a young age, we study and we study, we take exams and we progress. As we grow older, we start to realize that there are these tiers that form. In the school I went to, you had subjects, but within those subjects, you had different sets. Set A, they were seen as the best. 
set D, D stood for don't bother coming. Now, I'm not going to tell you which sets I was in, but that would become a point of tension among friends. Which set are you in? Oh, you're in set D. You start to be identified by how good you are at maths or DT or music or whatever it is. Your worthiness is defined by how smart you are. Do you see how it's working? The thing is, you leave school and think, oh, hopefully I'm out of that now. But, but no, that's how the world works. They value grades. They value your university degrees. Whether you've got a BA or an MA or a PhD or an MBA or whatever three-letter thing that comes after. Your jobs and salaries. Your worth and value in society is so often based upon your smartness, indicated by your education. Do you see how those basic principles are structured around us all the time? And Paul is saying, when you live, finding your worth in those basic principles, you're going to be enslaved. You're going to serve that God of smartness. If you're in set A, you're forever chasing to justify yourself through your educational achievement. And there's always more to learn. There always seems to be somebody smarter. It's never ending. You can do a master's, then a PhD, then an MBA, and then whatever. You're enslaved by the God of smartness as you try and seek your worth there. But if you're in set D, you feel totally unworthy. It's crippling. It's as though there's no way out. Enslaved by these basic principles. Now, you can do this with anything in the world. There are all sorts of gods, small g, that aren't gods at all, that enslave us. See, back then, they would, have, they would walk around the streets with these gods, these idols standing there. Plutus, the god of money. Aphrodite, the god of sex. Zeus, the god of power, and so on. Now, we don't have those same sorts of statues around us, but I think those idols still remain. And so here's the problem Paul is pointing out to the Galatians. He's saying in verse 9, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Why are you going back to these basic principles, those idols, to find your worth? All they did was enslave you. Don't turn back. That is a big point of this passage. Why, Why does this matter? Because Paul warns us in this passage it's dangerous for three reasons. Here's the first. You're going to be enslaved. Think back to last week. We saw this glorious news of freedom. Next slide. Freedom. True freedom isn't found in a, a frozen Disney fairy tale, but it's found only in God who by this one true gospel frees us from slavery. We who were once enslaved to sin, enslaved by these basic principles, are through Christ Jesus, through the death of, on him on, on the cross, now children of God and heirs. And here in this passage, he reminds them again of this new reality. Look at verse 9. But now that you know God, you have access to the God of the universe. Not just access but you can call him Father, Abba Father. In Korean, it's Appa. That's what my kids call me. Not because they think I'm God. Sometimes I wish they did think that, but no. But it shows, it shows the intimate relationship that we have. It's a whole identity, a reality, a certainty. They are my children always. He is our Father in Christ. And so Paul's saying, why are you turning away from that? From that freedom you have as a child of God. Why are you going back to slavery? If you turn back, you'll become enslaved 
Again, you've just been freed from prison. You're now an heir of the grandest estate in the entire universe. So why are you going back to prison again? And if Paul needed to remind them once again, he says, look, those forces, those basic principles of the world, they are weak and miserable. Weak, they have no power to save you, no power to give you worth or life. Miserable, because they are a picture of slavery. There's no joy, you're in chains. Your education, your smartness, that's not going to save you. Your wealth, your reputation, your relationships, that's not going to save you. Those are weak and miserable forces. But here's what's slightly confusing about this passage. He says you're turning back. But they're actually not turning back to some godless idolatry. Look at verse 10. This is what they're turning back to. You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Now this refers to the Jewish Mosaic law, where there were all sorts of special days, like the Sabbath and special festivals, the Jubilee and so on. So he's saying now you're turning back, next slide, turning back to the law. Now if you look at those, those two things seem so different. The basic principles of the world and the law, they seem so far apart. So how does this work? Let me try and illustrate this for you. I want you to meet someone called M. M is highly intelligent. She currently works in investment banking. She's on a six-figure salary. She spends about 14 to 16 hours a day on average in the office, often works weekends. She's often glued to her work phone when she's with her friends and family. And you peer into her heart, and you see that her hope and her worth is found in her career. She thinks that will save her. Then you meet Jay. He's sitting next to you in church. He's belting out these songs with you. He's been a churchgoer for years. People at church look up to him. He helps out uh, on the rotors with the kids' work and the music. He invites people into his home. But you peer into his heart, and you find that his hope is found in his attendance, his gifts, his hospitality. See, here's what Paul is saying. M and J, they look very different on the surface, but both face the same issue. They're both enslaved. Whether it's the law over here or the basic principles of the world over here, you're both enslaved because you're both trying to find worth outside of God. You're finding your justification in anything other than Jesus himself. One leans upon upon how smart they are, the other on how religious they are. And here's a warning to all of us today. Whether you call yourself a Christian or not, we need to know that there is this constant temptation in our hearts to want to go back to slavery. To build our worth on something other than God. Now, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian today, you're exploring things, I wonder if you get a sense of this in your life that you are constantly chasing but never quite reaching. There are moments when you feel like you're almost there, but then there's always something else or someone else. Or perhaps it's the flip side. You just constantly feel like you're failing. You feel worthless, and all you're doing is doing your best to cover it up. And you need to hear that the only place that you can find true freedom and salvation from this enslavement of this world is in Christ Jesus. You need to come to him. But for those of us who would call ourselves Christians, see, after we hear and accept the gospel, there is this temptation to return to our former life. 
There's this incessant desire to find our worth and justification in something other than God. Now, let me try and make this a little bit more specific for us to show us how this can play out. Let's think about gifts for a moment. You look at the Globe Church, we are a gift-rich church. What I mean by gifts is gifts that God's given us to serve one another. Here's the warning that Paul's giving us here. There is this danger when you start thinking your gifts are what save you. When you start thinking that your gifts are what define you. When you start thinking that it's your gifts that determine your worthiness as a child of God. That is the danger. See, what happens then is, for some of us, that will lead us to pride. Every time we're up front serving or using those gifts, you start to feel justified by those gifts until you meet someone else who's more gifted. And then you start wondering, does God love them more than me? How do I improve my gifts to show how good a Christian I am? Or worse yet, your pride makes you think that this church cannot survive without you. And so you start giving so much of yourself to the point that you're exhausted and you actually feel enslaved. You're just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You forget you're a child of God and you end up in your heart bitter. For others of us who feel like they don't have those sorts of gifts, particularly the ones that churches tend to value, the ones up front, as it were, you may feel like Actually, I'm not worthy. You struggle to find your place in church life. Sometimes you feel like you're an outsider. It can even get to a point where you start to wonder, am I really a child of God? And Paul is saying, no, that is not where you find your worthiness. That is what the basic principles, that is what the law does to you. Here's the antidote. I wonder if you caught it during the reading as Paul spoke as he wrote. Look again at verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God. It seems like a little afterthought, a little aside. But here's what Paul's saying. Yes, yes, it's true. If you're a Christian, you know God now, but you've got to get this. You are known by God. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you're saying, no, my worth is not found in what I do, but found in what Jesus has done, then you need to know that you are known by God. God has come and said, you know what, I know you. I know your name. I know your joys and your struggles. I know when you're laughing with your friends and when you're crying in the solitude of your room. I know you and I call you my child. I know you and I say you are worthy because of my son, because of Jesus. Let me try and illustrate this a little bit for you. Um, Saturday the 6th of May, there's a huge party going on in London. Is anyone invited? Does anyone know what's going on Saturday, 6th of May? Yeah, whispering, King's Coronation. King's... Okay, has anyone actually been invited? Because if they have, this illustration won't work. No one's been invited? Great. Okay, now imagine, now imagine you're invited. Okay, so you turn up, and there are these cameras. There's hundreds of millions of people watching this around the world. You turn up, and all the cameras are on you. And the commentators are there, if they're still there at the BBC. The commentators are there. <laughs> Sorry. Cheap shot. Um, the commentators are there, and they're like, who's that? They don't look like they belong. They're not a Beckham, or a, I don't know who else would be invited. But even, <laughs> shows my world. Even as we're watching, though, from home, we look and we think, why are they there? 
how did they end up there? Surely they must be trying to be sneaking. And there you are standing outside Westminster Abbey, the king's guard looking at you, these beef eaters, no, no, we don't know you. But then just imagine, as King Charles walks past, he says, ha, hi, you are known to me. I know you. Come in. That's what Paul's been striving to get the Galatians to see. Yes, you know God. You might think you know God, but get this. By faith in Jesus, the God of the universe knows you. You are known by God. Do you realize our daughtership, our sonship to God is not dependent on how much our hearts are set on God, but how much God's heart is set on us in Christ. That's where we get our confidence and worth from, knowing that truth, that we are known by God. So don't build your worth. Don't try and justify yourself through anyone else, anything else other than Jesus Christ. That is the only place you can find true freedom from slavery. That's the only way Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's where Paul's found his worth. Now, if you're not trusting Christ yet, I beg of you, come and build your life on Jesus, on the one who gave himself for you, who says, you are worthy to be called my child. Not based on your efforts or your feignings, but on your faith in Jesus. Come and hear God say, look, I know you. Will you respond to his call? If you're trusting Jesus this afternoon, if you call yourself a Christian, then you need to hear Paul say, look, don't turn back. Don't turn back to the law or to the basic principles, to religion or to idolatry. They are weak and miserable forces, but hold to the freedom that you have in Christ Jesus. How often do you reflect on this reality that you are someone who is known by God? I don't nearly enough. Life in London is busy, right? The basic principles of London is almost like if you're not doing something, if you're not busy, you're wasting time, you're not making the most of life, you're not worthy. But I've resolved this week to stop each day, to stop and praise God and say, thank you, God, that you know me. That because of Christ, because of your son who has brought me in, I am known by the God of the universe, and I urge you to do the same. Write it down somewhere visible. Put a reminder every day in your phone calendar that just says you are known by God. Your worth is found in Christ, so don't turn back to slavery. Here's the second thing Paul warns us of. Don't turn back because you'll make enemies. Don't turn back because you'll make enemies. Turning back to life under the law, that is divisive. Last week, we were thinking about the oneness we have in Christ. We heard of this beautiful verse, chapter 328, neither slave or free, male or female, Greek or Jew, we are all one in Christ Jesus. We were challenged to move towards one another, not to pull away. While turning back to the law, it drives a wedge. It makes you into enemies. It pulls you away. Let me show you what, what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 12. He starts off, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. Now, that's a bit confusing. What does Paul mean here? See, Paul was once someone who was a Jew under the law, but now he's someone who's freed by the gospel. 
He's no longer enslaved. And he's saying to them, look, become like me in exactly the same way. Be free in Jesus. For I became like you. See, Paul is saying with this newfound freedom, he wasn't wanting the Gentiles to become Jewish like him. He didn't need more pools in this world. He didn't want them to become circumcised or to observe all these dates and these laws. No, in his freedom in Christ, he says, I became like you. I had the freedom to become like the Gentiles, to mingle with them, to dress like them, to eat with them. He was able to push towards, not to pull away. That is why what Peter did in chapter 2, pulling away from the Gentiles, was such a damning act. When Peter began to pull away, this is what Peter was saying. I won't become like you, but you need to become like me. He was saying, to truly be God's child, you have to become like me, a Jew. Do you now see why Paul was so angry with Peter? Because turning back to the law is divisive. It creates enemies. So you know what? When I was back at school, those in set A and those in set D, there was this constant tension between those two groups. Set A would sneer down at those in set D. Man, it was painful. Sort of reveals that I was in set D for something. But set D would detest set A for their arrogance. That is a basic principle of the world. The in-crowds and the out-crowds, the strong and the weak. We see this happening in Jesus' time. The set A, the Pharisees, would sneer down at the weak ones, the set Ds, the tax collectors, the lepers, the prostitutes, who would in turn detest these proud Pharisees. And the same pattern was repeating in the church in Galatia. Those in set A, the, the strong ones, those who kept the law, the righteous ones, looking down on the set D, those who didn't keep the law. And Paul is saying, no, that is not how it works. Neither slave or free, Jew or Gentile, male or female, we are one in Christ Jesus. Don't turn back to the law. Jesus put himself under the law. He became the curse for us, and he took the curse of sin upon himself at the cross. He took the curse of the Gentiles under their basic principles, the curse of sin, of the law for the Jewish, and he brings them together as one. And you see the effect of the stunning power of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes when I think of, of Paul, I think of him as this super smart, super strong, super healthy guy. You know, someone who walks around with a Huel t-shirt, that, that, that sort of person. But Paul is more tabby cat than a tiger. He's more Johnny English than James Bond. Now, if those have gone over your head, let's try this one. He's more Olaf than Christoph. Frozen, frozen? No. Basically, what I'm saying is, Paul seems so strong, but actually he's often in weakness. He's actually not all that healthy. He's riddled with illness. He even goes on to say that he's not great, a great public speaker at one point. There's hope for me yet. But look at what the gospel does. Look at verse 13. He preached the gospel through illness, not strength. There's a play on words here. The root word here for illness is the same word used for weak and miserable forces back in verse 9. Paul saying, look, you were trying to find worth and value in what you thought was powerful, but in fact, those things made you, made you weak. But here in Paul's weakness, he's able to point to the one thing that is powerful to save, that is powerful to unite, to Jesus and his gospel. 
And you see the effect. Verse 14. Even in his illness, they didn't treat him with contempt or scorn. They didn't look down upon him. Instead, they were ready to gouge their eyes out. They were ready to give everything for Paul. They welcomed Paul like an angel, like Jesus himself. That is what the gospel does. See, it opens our eyes to see that our value and our worth in ourselves and in one another is found in Christ alone. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We see that in one another, and that defines us and our worth together. And we realize that we are all equally known by God. And so we are united. There is no scorn or contempt. But then look how it changes in verse 15. Where then is your blessing of me now? Verse 16, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? See, as the Galatians were turning back to the law for their justification, they were no longer defined by Christ, but now defined by how well they kept the law. Paul, to them, would have seemed like a set D sort of Christian. Where they once embraced his physical weakness, they now scorned and sneered at his spiritual weakness of how he didn't keep the law. So much so that Paul was now being treated like an enemy. Do you see how turning back to the law to basic principles can be so divisive? Let me warn you that the same attitude can creep back into the church. Let's keep with this idea of gifts. See, as you turn back to the law and you define your worthiness outside of Christ, here's what happens. The ones who do more, the ones who seem more gifted, they're the ones who seem more valuable. They're the ones who see themselves as more valuable. They're the set A type of Christians now. The basic principles of our culture say, look, be drawn to those who are strong, who are skilled, who are charismatic. And in the church, we start to do the same thing. We revert revert back to this sort of thinking. We turn back to the law where our religiousness starts to define our worth. And what happens from then is devastating. Because those who seem weak, who seem less gifted, are now classed as set D Christians. They seem like a burden. They're they're holding our ministry back. We could do so much more if they weren't around. And that is the exact Galatian problem. And Paul is saying, no, that is not the gospel. This hit me hard because... In my heart, I realize I do this too. I hate to admit it, but I have to admit it. I find myself often drawn more and valuing more those who seem strong, gifted, who do more, who seem more involved. And God's word told me this week, no, that is not what the gospel does. Welcome all those who are in Christ Jesus as though they were Jesus himself. Now, do I do that? Do we do that? See, as a church, I think we're fairly good at welcoming people in the first instance with big smiles. But how much do we welcome them as though they were Christ himself? Week in, week out, drawing them into our lives and our homes, do we honor them as we would Christ? How good are we at seeing those who are different, who may not have our same backgrounds, our education, our experiences, who may not be as gifted as us in whatever way, do we see them as a fellow brother or sister, known by God? 
Here's the other way it challenged me. I find it so easy, I find it so easy to see myself as being important. To see myself as being more valued because of what I do in this church. And Paul said, no, you don't need to be here. The gospel says that is not the way it works. If you think you're more important to the church than anybody else here, now hear me right, God loves you, sure, but you are not more worthy than somebody else sitting here who is in Christ Jesus. We are all known by God as our Father. Turning back to the law, turning back to weak and miserable forces, they will create factions and enemies within our church. So where are you in danger of making enemies at the moment? Where might there be these cliques forming at the globe? Why are they forming? Christians should be one big clique, if that even makes sense. Don't create enemies. Don't start getting comfortable in your little subgroups. Don't pull away from others, but push towards. Remember, those who have faith in Christ are known by God. They are a child of God as much as you and I are. Maybe something you could do today, now even, this week, is write down a name of somebody in the church that you don't know so well, who you might want to be praying for, who you might want to move towards this week, to remind them that you also are known by God. This passage, I think, looks directly within the church, but I think we can apply this more broadly. I was challenged this week when a dear brother said to me, you know, Mike, I look across London and I see churches that are so divided. John T. mentioned this briefly last week in his sermon, and I want to push on this a bit because it made me think we've got to be careful also as a church because sometimes we can have pride as churches that our church is a church to go to for X, Y, Z. We can start becoming like the world, following their basic principles, where we try to find out more of the areas where we are distinct and different than when we are actually having common. See, the foundational basis of us all is the gospel, the one true gospel of Christ. And if we hold to this, that means we have more in common with the hundreds of faithful churches across London, the ones that proclaim salvation by faith is in Christ and in Him alone. They are friends, they are sisters, they are brothers. So we need to be praying for them. We need to be supporting them. We need to be loving them. And we need to be careful that we don't look down upon them or think of ourselves as more highly. Let us not make enemies across our church family and beyond it as well. Here's the third and final thing, really briefly. You'll be excluded. So far in Galatians, we've seen the Galatians being infiltrated by these false teachers who are trying to turn them back to the law, to this no gospel. And here, Paul's saying, don't turn back. Do not listen to them. Do not turn to their false teaching or you will be excluded. This is what they do. Look at verse 17. Those people are zealous, zealous, enthusiastic to do what? To win you over to them, not to Christ. They basically want you to walk around wearing their merch, wear their t-shirt that says, I live under the law of this person. Instead of wanting you to become like Christ, they want you to become like them. Live like them, live for them. That word for zealous there, it, it carries this meaning of flattery. They flatter you, they tell you what you want to hear 
so that you might flatter them. That is a distinctive of false teaching. Their focus is all on themselves. And what they do is they want to contain you in their little echo chamber. And that is Paul's fear. He's saying, look, if you turn back to the law and to this type of false teaching, if you sit in their echo chamber, you will be alienated. You will be excluded from Paul and the true church now and ultimately from Christ himself. See, here's the big danger of turning from the truth of the gospel. Not only does it enslave you, not only does it cause division and enemies in our relationships, it will lead you to your exclusion from the true freedom you have in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus came to save us from being enslaved. He took on the curse of sin, the chains of the law, by being nailed to a cross. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He did that so that we might go free. Jesus died so that we would no longer be enemies to God and to one another. There was no more division. No more division across ethnic lines, gender lines, socioeconomic lines. We are now friends of God and united to one another. But more than that, Jesus died so that we might no longer be excluded from his kingdom. But that we might be included into his family. Into his inheritance to be called God's children. And Paul's saying, if you turn back to the law, you're going to exclude yourself from all of this blessing. The freedom, the friendship, the family of God. And you make Jesus' death count for nothing. So what is the alternative? Paul says, be zealous. Be zealous for what is good. Be zealous for what Paul is zealous for. He doesn't want them to be zealous for himself. No. Verse 19, he is zealous for them to have Christ formed in them. He wants them to have zeal for Christ and him alone. He wants them to have zeal to see the power of the gospel, the gospel that says you are known and loved by God. He wants them to know that you have truly been set free because of Christ. So don't turn back. Don't turn back or you will be enslaved. Don't turn back or you will make enemies. Don't turn back or you will be excluded. Instead, let us be zealous for Christ so that we might know the freedom we have, so that we might be friends of God and with one another, so that we might remember we are known by God and a part of his family. Amen. Let me lead us in a prayer as we reflect on everything that Paul's just taught us through this word. Father, please, would you keep us from turning back, from turning from the one true gospel, the gospel of freedom in Christ Jesus. Please, would you help us to not turn back, to be enslaved, to make enemies, to be excluded. Father, instead, help us to see the freedom we have in Christ, to see the friendship we have through Christ, to see the family we have now in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.